Welcome back to the Cost of Caring podcast, where we talk about the mental, relational, physical, and financial costs of caregiving. Cost of Caring is presented by Givers, a savings and support platform that automates access to benefits programs and reimbursements for families who want to save money on caregiving. We're so happy you've joined us. Let's dive into today's episode. Today, we're talking to Melissa, who is the head of clinical at Help Texts. Melissa has over 17 years of experience in training and curriculum design focused on grief, trauma, and loss. And today, we're talking about caregiver grief and how to manage anticipatory and ambiguous grief. Uh, so, my name is Melissa Lenardini, and I am a former. Uh, millennial caregiver, of course. I'm sure you've met many of us, um, but currently I'm head of clinical at Help Text, and uh, the whole idea behind Help Text is providing support via text message, which works really well for caregivers, as you can imagine. But I do have 17 years of experience, not only in hospice bereavement, but just in death, dying, bereavement, trauma, loss across the board, and I specialize in families and children and teens. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, we'll definitely, I want to like dig into what help text is and what you guys are doing and, you know, so what's on the horizon for you. But before we get there, I'm hoping to talk a little bit about um, what you just said, like what you specialize in. I think uh, you know this and we know this, but caregivers deal sort of with two types of grief, anticipatory grief, and then, you know, grief after death. Um, and of course, there's, you know, a million different scenarios that someone might be caring for. So this anticipatory grief could be quite long or could be short, but can you talk a little bit about what is anticipatory grief and how how that affects caregivers supporting someone with a terminal diagnosis? Yeah, absolutely. And I'll even throw in another type of grief that I think also occurs often um, during this uh, journey, if you will, of caregiving. Um, so anticipatory grief is really the grief that you experience when you know that there's an impending loss on the horizon. So somebody has uh, received a diagnosis and a prognosis of some sort, and grief really starts at that point, um, right at diagnosis, and then, and then takes many shapes and forms um, as time goes on. So when we think about anticipatory grief, we're really thinking about like, all of the ways that somebody will encounter loss throughout this caregiver journey, um, all of the ways that they'll grieve this future relationship that they might have with this person, the changing of a relationship that will take place, um, all of the different hopes and dreams that may shift and change over time, but then just decline. And then your own just personal grief will also uh, come to play. And in that I would say there's something called ambiguous loss. And ambiguous loss really, um, we see this with caregivers who may experience um, caregiving for somebody who has dementia, Alzheimer's, or possibly a traumatic brain injury, um, where they are physically present in your life, but psychologically they're, they're just not where they used to be. And so there's this loss that happens there, and that's really... Um, the grief around that is just not being able to like emotionally reconcile um, the changes that are happening cognitively with your person. Um, and then, of course, as you mentioned, just the grief, right? Bereavement after somebody has died, all of the um, 
responses that you might experience there. So emotional, physical, spiritual, social, cultural, um, behavioral, psychological responses to loss and those change in duration and intensity over time. Um, but as we know, everybody's grief is different. And so, um, so yeah, there's this kind of con like continuum, if you will, of grief uh, in a caregiver's journey, I think, that starts at the beginning of diagnosis and then kind of just ebbs and flows and changes and evolves um, over time until after death. Yeah, thanks for sharing all that and for including ambiguous, ambiguous grief. I think that's, you know, an interesting distinction that so many people experience as caregivers. Um, I think we probably all know just from the internet, uh, you know, that there's five stages of grief. Many of us have gone gone through them, but can you talk us through the five stages of grief and how they might change or be different in something like anticipatory or ambiguous grief as opposed to sort of the, like, the aftermath of something? Sure. So Elizabeth Kubler-Ross is obviously we, a beloved pioneer in our industry. Um, and, you know, that framework really came from her work of trying to understand the psychological reaction that people have to imminent death. So it was really designed for anticipatory grief um, and not necessarily uh, super applicable in bereavement. Um, however, it does get applied in bereavement and in other losses um, as that framework, the stages of grief framework, also known as DABDA, denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance, right? Um, it was never really meant to be the super strict linear framework, but rather it was um, the intention was to recognize and show patterns of the way somebody might think, the emotions that they might have, the behaviors that they may go through. Um, and it was really designed to help people engage in more meaningful end-of-life conversations. Um, but the reality is, and she explicitly says this as well in many of her writings, is that not everybody will go through these stages, um, but they will be going through something. And it's our it, it, like, it's our job to be open and be curious. I, I always talk about like um, the best way to be an intentional caregiver during the end of life is to be like a feelings detective and really kind of open the door for somebody to explore what is going on and coming up for them during this entire process. And um, in doing so, you're really becoming not only trauma-informed, but also grief-informed. And you're allowing that loved one to have a voice and choice in, in a lot of their kind of end-of-life process. Um, I worked with a gentleman who was in his 70s, and he had a 50-year-old uh, marriage, 50-plus um, years with a woman, and she died on hospice. And um, I was doing one-on-one -on -one counseling with him, and he came in, and in our first session, he goes, I've been through all the stages already, but I just can't get to anger. Me and my wife had a beautiful life. She died in the most peaceful, loving way. I held her as she took her last breath. There's really nothing for me to be angry about. But I'm here because I feel like I can't move on until I get through anger. It's, it's literally holding me back in my grief. And so we had a little discussion about that. Um, and come to find out, he wanted to get through anger because he really felt ready to um, have a companion again. And needed permission to skip 
the anger phase and not go through it. And when we had that discussion, like two weeks later, I got like a, a postcard in the mail of, of him and a woman, a lady companion on a cruise. And it like literally said like, how blessed am I to be able to um, have two lovely women in my life in my lifetime? And I'm just like, ah, oh, when we give, when we remove what grief should look like from people's lives and just let them do what naturally comes to them, um, people tend to innately do what's best for them, but often just need the permission or need to, uh, you know, understand or hear that there's no like proper way to do this. Yeah, I have a couple follow-up questions. I mean, that's a really beautiful story. <laughs> um, and I think helpful for people to hear that there's like no right way to grieve. Um, you've been using the word bereavement um, I guess I'm wondering, can you talk about the difference between like grieving and mourning or bereaving someone? Mm -hmm. And maybe those three words are different. <laughs> yeah, I, I, they, they really are. And it's funny because I think a lot of people use a lot of words interchangeably, you know, but people in our industry know that there's this really subtle difference between them. Right. Um, and so I always love this question because. Um, when when we become a little bit more informed about it, then we're able to really even check our own biases around what grief should look like. Um, so the best way for me to describe the difference between like grieving and mourning or grief and mourning is I think of grief as this internal response to loss. So it's all the thoughts, the feelings, the somatic symptoms that you might have, that spiritual tug of war that can often happen with people. Um, what I always say is like, it's really invisible to the eye. It's there, but you don't really see it. Um, whereas mourning is this outward display of grief. It's what a lot of people in our industry call grief gone public. And um, it's how we let other people know that we need support. It might be the tears that we shed. It might be the black that we're wearing. It might be arriving um, to the cemetery and bringing flowers. It might be, you know, attending uh community groups and in workshops and events. It's really the outward display of grief. And so one of the things that I think is so important for us to um, realize is that while everybody mourns, or while everybody grieves rather, not everybody will mourn. So not everybody shows this outward display of grief. Um, but that doesn't mean that it's not there, right? Because we often hear that people are like, oh, they're so adjusted. They're doing so well. Um, but that's just because we're looking for visual cues of them not looking well. We're looking for mourning um, versus understanding that grief could be very much present um, and, and unbearable, probably, in a lot of spaces. Yeah, I think that's a super helpful distinction. And you said something interesting before about being... Um, being a feelings detective and that helping you become grief informed. Can you share a little bit more about what you mean by that? Like, what does it mean to be trauma informed or what does it mean to be grief informed? Sure. Oh, gosh. Um, I will say this. The Dougie Center has a really great outline of what it means to be grief informed. And it's really just recognizing a lot of these components around what grief informed work looks like. It's recognizing, and I'm not going to hit them all because I think there's about 15 of them, but it's recognizing that it's a natural response to loss, right? It's recognizing that there is this, um, what makes grief so multifaceted is that it is layered and infused with culture, with societal expectations, with, um, you know, 
mental health or wellness? Um, what what is his like historical to you, but what's also currently present? It's um, that it requires a social you know support system in order to to be um, processed well. Um, and there's a a bunch of other other kind of components of what it means to be grief informed. What it means to be trauma informed, though, is to also um, engage in somebody when you're when you're working with somebody is to figure out ways to build connection and rapport so that there's this level of safety in the room um, that's free of judgment. There's also this collaboration that takes place. So it's not one person telling you how things should be, but it's really this um, opportunity to engage and connect and and really this back and forth idea. It's it's really saying that you're the expert in your in your experience and I'm here really in whatever capacity you need me to be. If you need me to be here to listen, if you need me to be here to help problem solve or troubleshoot, that's the way that I'll be here for you. And then it's also about giving voice and choice, right? So really um, making sure in the caregiving world, right, we talk a lot about like um, infantile infantilization, like like when we, you know, make decisions on behalf of somebody just because, you know, they're part of, they're in this disease process, but they're fully capable of also engaging and having a voice and choice in it. Um, but when we remove that, we put them back into the state of being an infant and really kind of rob them of dignity and autonomy um, when they're fully capable of still um, partaking and stuff like that. So really being trauma-informed around that work is really saying, like putting power back into the patient's hand as much as possible, so long as they're making choices that are safe for them, right? Um, so that's what I mean when we talk about being a feelings detective. It's really just never making the assumption that you know what they are experiencing because you don't, right? But our job is to be curious about it. Yeah, I love that. If, um, if you will, I'd love to be able to share that link, you know, in the description and, and along with this episode afterwards. Um, and I think you've sort of segued into my next question, which is, you know, in your line of work, what are some of the pervasive myths you've like seen or heard or witnessed um, about mental health and or grief and this experience? Well, I'm sure that you're aware and everybody listening is very aware that there's so many, <laughs> there are so many myths um, that are really harmful over helpful in, in both spaces. In the mental health space, though, the one thing that I think is, and I'm going to talk about societal myths, if you will, um, versus individual myths, um, because I really believe that change happens on a bigger level. Um, so the pervasive mental health myth, I would say, is that, is that if you receive a diagnosis, that it, be, that it is a lifelong problem that you won't be able to um, manage per se. But much of the diagnoses in the DSM and the ICD can be managed in a lot of ways um, with, and, and often eradicated, um, but they can be managed with lifestyle changes, healthy boundaries and routines and, and some good therapy, right? Um, uh, and, and that's hard work you know, um, but, but, it, but it is possible. And then you can either, you know, get your symptoms really managed um, or in some cases eliminated entirely. Um, and then in the grief space, there are so many myths, but I think the two most like pervasive ones that stick out to me just based off of the work that I've done is that from a societal um, point of view, I think society thinks that grief isn't disruptive. 
that um, you should easily be able to get over it. And that's proven in our, you know, three to five bereavement leave business days allocated by businesses. Um, and it's also just proven in the fact that just we don't talk about it. It's not something that is addressed um, often from a medical standpoint of view, right? Um, but then the other pervasive myth, I would say, is that grieving children and teens are resilient. Um, and the reality is, is evidence for both just do not support either of those myths or societal misunderstandings. Yeah, I think what you just said about um, a mental health diagnosis, you know, not being for a, life, a lifetime necessarily is uh, probably very encouraging to people listening. And then I guess my question about this myth uh, about grief not being disruptive on a societal level is like, you know, we have work gives you three to five days bereavement leave and, you know, there's not a lot of other policies or structures in place. I guess, you know, how can we on an individual level start to challenge this societal myth so that people, so that it changes? Do you have any insight into that? Yes. I mean, the the biggest way, you know, we know that when it comes to policy change, it requires people putting their name on the line and um, actually advocating and signing documents and showing up and calling the representatives, which it sounds like, uh, what is my one call going to do here? Um, but people have made it so easy to participate now. Sometimes you, you can just get a link right to your phone and then you click a few buttons and then your voice has been accounted for. And so I think really, you know, finding the spaces where you can advocate and and help make a little change. Moving the needle a little is better than no movement at all. And, um, you know, I, I think that we just need to, you know, come together as grievers. There are more grievers than there are non-grievers at this point, right? And so a group of really loud people who want to make change can make change. Um when they're ready, but you know, early on in grief, it's a little hard to do anything but survive. So, I was just about to say, I think early on that can be, you know, that can be hard. You're like, yeah, feel like you're drowning a little bit. But, um, I guess in this, <clears throat> sorry, I have a frog. Um, I guess in the same vein about you know grief being disruptive, um, it is, <laughs> and you can't circumvent it. Like you're gonna go through it, however you go through it. Um, and I think we talk a lot about like feeling your feelings. Um, you know, and that kind of sucks. Um, can you talk about like, why is it important to feel your feelings and how do you actually do that? Like, what does that mean to feel your feelings? Yeah. Well, I, I think the first thing that I always say is that, uh, to just say that grief is feelings simplifies grief to its like most basic form, right? We know that it's so much more than just feelings. Grief is so much more than feelings. It's, you know, spiritual questions and physical manifestations and exhaustion and brain fog and, you know, problem solving and all sorts of things, right? Emotions just happen to be um, pervasive because they're often in conflict, that you're often experiencing them in large ways or in small ways, and some are very easy to understand and some are very complex. And so they, they often take up a lot of space in, in grief. Um, so they get kind of a lot of the attention there, but, um, but because we love using analogies here, I, I, I will use an analogy. Um, and by here, I mean, in the grief space, because grief is such an enigma. It's so hard to 
um, articulate. So we, we tend to use analogies to help make sense of, of something that is so hard to understand. Um, but when it comes to this idea of why it's so important to like lean into feelings, but I'm going to broaden it and say lean into your grief, the all-encompassing of it, right? Um, I'm not sure if anybody, anybody listening in has seen the viral video going around and it's really talking about the difference between how cows and buffaloes handle storms. And uh, the video goes on to talk about like when a cow senses a storm coming, its first thought is to head the, the opposite direction and try to outrun the storm. And by doing so, this cow gets exhausted and it maximizes the amount of pain and time and frustration that it is experiencing from the storm. And it never outruns the storm, right? Ultimately, the storm catches up to, to the cow. The buffalo, on the other hand, though, turns into the storm and runs headfirst into the storm. And it minimizes the amount of pain, time, and frustration that it's in the storm. And when it's when it comes out of the storm, it's able to resume, you know, grazing and going about its business. And I think grief is like that, right? We have choices. We can either choose to try to outrun grief and get exhausted and still never outrun grief. Like it'll still catch up to us. But maybe perhaps by the time it does, our resources are completely depleted. Um, or we can choose to be like a buffalo and head right into it. When grief comes, when our storm comes, we run right into it, you know, settle in, handle the storm. And then we're able to go about our daily lives afterwards. And the reason why I love that analogy is because the universal truth about grief is that it doesn't get ignored. You you know, it refuses to be ignored. So even when you think you're disconnecting from it or you've avoided it, you've outpaced it, you're outrunning it, all it is doing is quietly rerouting itself and looking for another pathway out to be acknowledged. So perhaps you're choosing not to acknowledge it mentally or emotionally. Well, it's going to find its pathway physically then or spiritually or perhaps you're going to withdraw from family and friends. It will find its way out. And so, you know, it's really about, you know, how much do you want to prolong the time and pain by outrunning it? Or do you want to minimize it and just hit it head first? Um, and that, that's what I, that's what I, I'm inclined to always lean in um, versus try to outpace yeah, I mean, I love that analogy. And I, I think it's interesting because I think for many people who are, you know, risk adverse or pain adverse, which I don't think is like uncommon for human beings, I think you you look at the buffalo and you're like, you idiot, like that's why are you running into the storm? Like that seems crazy. That was my initial reaction when you, you know, said the analogy. But um I also liked what you said about like the storm's still coming. Like it's gonna find you, it's gonna come out some way. And so it, you know, takes some level of bravery to head in head first. Um, I wrote down a question and I think it's probably changed a little bit just based off of what you've shared so far, but the question is, what are some tools people can use to move through anticipatory grief? And I think maybe I'm curious about that. I think after someone dies, people 
other people see that there's a marker that something has changed. And so like, it's like more, you're more allowed to like mourn, show signs of grief and this sort of thing. Um, I'll leave the question as it is, but I do wonder if it's changed a little bit since what we've talked about. Yeah. So, um, you know, when I think about tools, I think about like, what are the things that I can use um, or implement in my life in order to help um, me manage this process, um, right? Because it is really about managing. We're not we're not going to be able to avoid it, right, or outrun it, right? So it's, it's how can I manage this or make this feel more manageable when things feel very unmanageable um, around me, right? So I would say like, um, the first thing for me is um, a tool that I would say, like, coming to awareness. So, and what I mean by that, what I mean by coming to awareness is um, the ability to acknowledge that this new relationship will be formed. That, and this this newly formed relationship that you're about to have as you care give for somebody else will be the last type of relationship that you have as they're physically here on the on this earth right and so so there's this becoming aware about how that makes you feel about how you're going to choose to honor that knowing that you can't change it um and how that might also make that person feel right so it's like a good example here is i worked with a, a gentleman again and his wife had als and so he was a caregiver for a really long time. Um, and what he said was, is that our relationship changed from a romantic relationship of husband and wife to a very platonic relationship. Um, and at the end of life, we were friends. We were not husband and wife. And, um, and so a lot of his work had to come with, you know, grieving the fact that he had to let go of this romantic relationship um, and move into this very platonic, non-romantic relationship over the years that he was caregiving. And um, he chose to still honor his wife and his in his marriage, even though there was no intimacy or anything like that, right? Um and he chose to still be gentle and kind and loving and really treat her like he would want to be cared for himself. Um, and that's how he chose to honor that relationship. And it worked for both of them. And then, um, you know, after he died, he was fully ready to get into um, a romantic relationship, right? But but that point of coming to awareness that a relationship, a new relationship will form in your caregiving journey, and that's just part of the caregiving journey and the disease process, right? It just changes who a person is. So that's one tool I would say is just be open to being aware of all of the changes that will happen and then honoring kind of those changes. Um, I think the other thing that is really hard for people to do, but it's a, it's a muscle that we have to really exercise is remaining present. I think in the caregiving journey, um, particularly in anticipatory grief, we want to think backwards and forward. We want to anticipate needs in the future, but then we also want to try to make make meaning or make sense of why this is happening, which is kind of this backwards thinking, right? Um, but the sooner that you can get yourself to just remain in the present moment, I think 
that is when you can be super intentional with your time with the person who is dying and towards end of life. But then you can also then really do the work of your own grief process too that's coming up for you. So being present is just a, it's a true gift um, and tool that I think a lot of people really should consider. Um, I have two more tools that um, I think are really important. Um, the other one is to accept and ask for support. The reality is, is that often um, we are terrible as caregivers for asking for support because there can be this like superhero complex, I think, that we naturally adopt where we think that only we can provide the best level of care to our person and everything else is very substandard uh, because we know them best. And, and that, that may be true. However, caregiver burnout is a very real thing. It happens sooner than people think. Most caregivers aren't even aware that even their care starts to decline. Their, their ability to give care at the standard in which they hope to give care starts to decline over time as well. And um, you just have to reconcile um, in your own brain and heart that it's okay to allow other people to come in and offer care um, so that you can get the rest and recharge that you need. Because for a lot of caregivers, it's a very long journey. And then the last thing I'll say, the last tool I'll say is have all the conversations that matter. Um, and what I mean by that is that, you know, you want to be able to like tell them how meaningful they were to, to you and all of that. But there are caregivers who have a very complicated relationship with the person that they're caring for. And I want to shout them out for a second. Um, because when we talk about having all the conversations that matter, sometimes caregivers who are caring for somebody who has a co and they have a complex relationship, one of the things that they'll probably want to have a conversation about is how their relationship wasn't that great or how they wish things could have been different. And maybe they're expecting an apology of some sort. Um, and although making amends and getting an apology is very beautiful, the one thing I will say is when you have a conversation that matters, you cannot be wedded to the outcome. And know that if somebody has hurt you, <laughs> um, it isn't a requirement in your healing to hear that apology from you, from them, right? You're in charge of your own healing. And so when we talk about having conversations that matter, I think it's really important that you can have a conversation with them around wishing that things were different, but also finding gratitude that you're able to be in a space or in this moment with them, even if it's brief and fleeting, um, that potentially could have like moments of peace and connectedness, even without an apology. Um, and so... I say that because I think of even my own family dynamics where apologies were needed. They weren't able to be verbally exchanged, but know that, you know, it's not required for your healing. So those would be the tools that I would, I would say are really, really important for caregivers to think about in anticipatory um, kind of phase or end of life caregiving, if you will. Yeah. I mean, those are all really, um, beautiful and helpful I, I think to my own experience as a caregiver and like the the changing relationship you know particularly resonated I um 
learned that as we went, but knowing it, you know, sort of sooner might have been helpful because it was confusing to go through, you know, to start parenting your parent or, or just experiencing this, this role change was interesting. And then what you just said about having conversations that matter, um, but not holding too tightly to the outcome. I, you know, experienced the same thing with my mom. Uh, we had a very complicated relationship. She's, you know, since passed and, and, you know, I never heard like, an, I'm sorry. And a big part of my hearing journey was, you know, learning to forgive, even though I don't get the other side of that. But, um, everything you just said, I think was really beautiful and helpful to people that are, you know, going through anticipatory or ambiguous grief. Um, I guess following up on that is less about caregivers, but more about people that are sort of in the caregiver's space. You know, how can other people talk to caregivers about anticipatory grief, about ambiguous grief? Um, I think it can feel awkward to like bring it up or ask someone how they're doing, you know, any like tips for friends or family of caregivers? Yeah. I mean, I think that anytime a hard conversation has to happen, I don't think that there's ever a perfect moment, right? Um, Sometimes the moment is when they're in your presence and then people, and then you just, you give them the chance to back out gracefully without any pressure, right? It's, it's, you know, hey, how have you been feeling lately as you've kind of been in this whirlwind of caregiving? And if they start to say, oh, my gosh, I'm just so exhausted at this, that or whatever, um, then you take that as a door opener willing to, like, discuss more about it. Right. Or if they're like, oh, I'd, really, I'd prefer to talk about anything but that, then that's them kind of saying, like, hey. I don't have the capacity emotionally to kind of go there with you right now. It's not that I won't ever, but just right now, that's not what I'm needing, right? And then our, for us as supporters, right, you know, it's like, how can I support you in what you need right now? Um, do you need a spa day? Do you need to go have lunch? Do you need to, you know, have a little time for like a breather meditation? Can I go watch your, you know, person for an hour or two? So that way you have that that time to yourself. Um just really taking any time that you're engaging with them as an opportunity to open the door for a conversation and check the pulse, right? Um, so my short answer is there's never a good time. Just always take the opportunity when you get it. <laughs> yeah, I think that's a helpful reminder. Um, I'd love to just, thank you so much for sharing, you know, so much information about grief and tools to you. I think this has all been helpful. I think one a tool in someone's toolkit might be help texts. Um, I'm hoping to sort of shift the conversation a little bit. Um, can you tell us more about what is help text and what's the mission over there? Sure. Um, I absolutely love this product. I have to say, I when I heard about this, I was like, hard yes, like hard yes when it comes to being able to um, break down barriers that often come with caregiving, but also with accessing mental health and, and grief support in general. People don't have the time, the transportation, the resources, the trust, the whatever, the, there's a long wait list, whatever it is, whatever barrier it is, this literally cuts through everything because the support comes directly to you on your phone, right? And so the mission really of Help Text is to, you know, make receiving mental health and grief support super accessible for people who need it for as long as they need it. Um, there's really no time when we think about, um, you know, 
equitable services. Text is where it's at. And and text has the capacity to provide quality care and support. Um, and it's provided in very bright, like bite-sized practical pieces, which is so, so huge for people who are saturated with making a lot of decisions, with being overwhelmed, with um, not being able to engage emotionally right in the moment in session, right? Like we've we had a gentleman once tell us that he loved receiving texts because he can go back to them when he was ready to deal with it. But if he paid for a therapy session, whether or not he was ready for it, it didn't really matter because he was on the clock and he had to go there, even if he wasn't ready to. But texts afford you convenience, right? Like you get to circle back when you're ready. Um, and so, so really the mission is to just to make receiving support very accessible and easy to receive for anybody and affordable. Uh, and then correct me if I'm wrong here. I just want to make sure that people are understanding the product uh, sort of in its entirety. It's not, um, I don't want to like name drop. It's not like online therapy. It's not going back and forth with a therapist in live time. It's getting text messages to you in support of your grief experience. Um, and hopefully that's correct, what I've just said. Uh, yeah. Can you talk a little bit about how it's like personalized to someone or how this, you know, what are the pros and cons to using help texts in place of meeting someone in person or, you know, other forms of mental health support? Sure, sure. Yes, you are right. So it's it's asynchronous support, which means that it's one way. However, people do engage with the text all the time. So they might, you know, talk to us on a regular basis. We have a team that really re that reads every single inbound and will respond as needed. Um, but people who sign up are very informed. We remind them that it's one way. Um, and so in that case, it's not two-way therapy, right? Um, it's, and that's, somebody might consider that to be an actual con of the service, right? It's like a, um, a limitation of the service if they're really wanting to engage it back and forth. Um, but really, um, our goal is to fill a big public health gap. And engaging in two-way therapy with a therapist, there's a cap to the amount of people that a therapist can see, right? But when support is delivered one way, it actually opens up the availability to serve thousands and millions of people all at once. And so in that regard, it's like a public health model intervention tool that's capable of supporting large segments of the population all at the same time. Um, and that's one of the pros of it as well, right? That it's, you know, we're able to serve large segments of the population. It's not invasive. You can choose when to read your texts. Um, the texts are all predictable, actionable, bite-sized. They're rooted in evidence-based practices. They're inspired and written by like world-leading experts in caregiving, burnout, grief and loss, trauma. Um, we send tips to family and friends. So each subscription that person can add in to family and friends who want to help but may not know how. And so we'll send them kind of practical ways to show up and offer support. Um, and, you know, texts are there when other options are not. So, you know, you might go have a therapy session on a Tuesday and then not another one for a couple of weeks later. You might have a grief group on a Wednesday. Um, texts are there multiple times a week, on weekends, on days off on holidays, just showing up and offering kind of a gentle presence. Um, and yeah, it's one way, but the data 
we survey a lot of people. I mean, we've surveyed thousands of people who have utilized our services. And the data that comes back is roughly about 95% of people find the text helpful and supportive. Um, and they say things like, you know, it feels very personalized and customized because we are using your name and your loved one's name. Um, people can tell us as much information as they want. And the more information we get about them, the more curated the texts become for you. Um, if they're not comfortable, they only have to share a little bit of information with us. Um, and they're still going to get really great content that will still resonate with their experience because we're really pulling from universal or central themes that are really commonly experienced. Um, and we never say shoulds or you you should do this or or anything like that. We always just say this may be helpful for you. Perhaps consider this or um, if this is true for you type of thing. Like the, they're very gentle in the way in their approach and um, are not labeling in any way, but really just um, rooted in, you know, education and validation and coping strategies all to help kind of um, normalize and validate the grief experience. Yeah, I mean, I, I love that. I think, you know, there's... Uh... I guess I, I asked that question. I wanted to clarify so people understand what the product is, but I, I really think that this, you know, the way you guys are giving like practical, I love this focus on practicality and bite-sized personalized content to people. Um, it's a, like a really valuable tool for people to have access to that's very different from therapy or, uh, you know, support group or, or any of the above. Um, can I, can I quickly talk about the caregiver? Yeah product. So our caregiver product, I'm like in love with because not only are we addressing, you know, anticipatory grief, but patient care and advocacy and, you know, all of the things that you'll really, you know, experience. But we have the option that when, when you're informed that your person is going into the active dying stage, which could be roughly anywhere, you know, 14 days out or so from their death. Um, they can let us know. And then we have, we've worked with like people like Barbara Carnes and Gabby Jimenez. And, you know, we've got content from BJ Miller and we are really then um, texting them daily with the things that matter most in the last 14 days after leading up to a death to really be this steady support with really beautiful, gentle texts that speak to some of the really big major decisions that families have to make um, during those last few days of life. Um, and so it, it becomes just like the best companion, if you will, when you feel like you're caregiving alone in isolation. Um, so I love that. I love that part of the product and, um, it's really going to be uh, just powerful and helpful for many, many people, I believe. Yeah. I love that. Thank you for highlighting that. Um, if people want to use help text, like how do they, how do they get started? Sure. So there's a couple of ways, you know, um, Ideally, in our in in our ideal world, we would have businesses pay for this and then make it free and available to people, so they don't have to pay for it themselves. And that's what we're working on, always. So one mechanism is if you are ever, if you're an organization who supports caregivers and or um, 
people with um, terminal diagnosis, for example, you can purchase subscriptions in bulk and then make them free and available to people who need it most, um, who may also be resource depleted (laughs) um, and could find a lot of value in something like this. But the other way is you can just buy a subscription as a gift for somebody for $99 through our website, um, which is helptext.com. And, um, or you can purchase it for yourself for $99 through our website. There's a variety of ways that when you think about like intentional gift giving and showing up in a big way, gifting somebody a product like this for $99, it is literally cheaper than, you know, a Grubhub mill or, you know, buying flowers. Um, but it's showing up in, in a much fuller and robust way. Um, and you become part of their support team too. So it just becomes this very beautiful, intentional and meaningful gift to offer somebody when, when you know that they're going through something that it really is like all consuming, um, and hard. I've never met a kid who was like, this is easy. (laughs) This is so easy. Yeah. Everybody (laughs) should do it. Yeah. (laughs) Um, and you're right. Flowers are out here getting crazy. So I, I think this is a really, you know, intentional and beautiful gift. And just to clarify that $99 is for like an annual subscription. It is. So it's for 12 months of support. Um, and if you start with a caregiver product, perhaps your person doesn't live for 12 months, which is, um, fun. Um, you get naturally transitioned into our grief product. So you'll still get 12 months of support no matter what. Um, It'll just be contingent on the phase uh, in which you're needing the support. Um, And then, of course, the grief product, uh, so to help text for grief, is fully up and well. So if you have been a caregiver and your loved one has died um, and you're really struggling or wanting some support, or perhaps you're not struggling but you just want X support, um, this becomes a really viable option and it's also $99 and it's a uh, great support, gentle and non-invasive. It's pretty amazing. Yeah. I love that. I love how smart it is. Like the product is smart, um, you know, by way of helping people sort of navigate where they are. So they're not getting texts that are irrelevant to where they are in their journey. Um, yeah. My last question for you, we like to ask everyone that comes on the Cost of Caring podcast, uh, what is your number one tip for family caregivers? Oh, yeah, that's a good one. Um, I'm just going to go back to my own personal experience for a moment here. And it, it would be to don't fall into the cognitive trap. So the trap of thinking that you're the only one that can provide quality care to your loved one Um, because burnout does happen really quickly and um, it's one of the hardest things that I think any caregiver has to do is to be okay with moderate to excellent levels of care throughout the care journey Um, and I say that because perhaps you provide excellent care but somebody else may only provide moderate levels of care to your loved one Um, and, and that's okay because unless you have a lot of resources, um, you know, the reality is, is, is that you just have to be able to reconcile with yourself that moderate to excellent levels of care is going to be okay. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's helpful. And I like this sort of distinction you've made 
I think often, uh, you know, the top tip from someone is to ask for help. Uh, and I think the distinction you're making around like accepting help and being open to moderate to excellent levels of care is uh, an important one. Um, Melissa, thank you so much for joining this conversation. Um, we'll be sure to share it with you once it's, you know, live and tag help text so that people can find um, these support products there. Yes, thank you so much for having me. And we're um, so excited for the work that you're continuing to do in this space as well. So thank you. Yeah, we'll talk to you soon. All right, Bye. take care. Bye. That's it from this episode of the Cost of Caring podcast presented by Givers. See you next time.